Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hello, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. Welcome to Democracy Works. So today, Michael, we're going to uh, talk about this um, really topical issue of um, public sector unions and their role in the democracy. And this obviously comes up with what you're seeing in many, uh, well, red states, uh, Oklahoma and Arizona most most, um, obviously, with respect to the role of um, teachers and how they're... um, uh, making public appeals for lack of resources and and uh, um, the decline of quality education in those states. Yeah, we have a terrific guest to talk with about these uh, subjects, uh, Paul Clark, the director at Penn State of the uh, School of Labor and Employment Relations. So public sector unions are very important to talk about right now. Uh, you know, I don't know how many Americans are, I think Americans are aware of the fact that private sector unions have lost strength over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if they're aware of how much public union, public employee unions have gained strength. Right. Relatively. Unions were, private unions were usually associated with manufacturing. And as manufacturing has declined and as globalization of some of these labor intensive uh, industries have moved, uh, private sector unions have declined. Right. Especially up here in the industrial north, um, on the West Coast as well, a long, strong union states, uh, public policies that were favorable to unions, right. and large percentages of the population uh, belong to unions. But the uh, percentage of the American public that is, uh, that is uh, a member of a labor union in the private sector anyway has declined to single digits. Right. I think it's less than 7% of the American workforce is now a member of a private sector union. It's a dramatic uh, change. Uh, the percentage of the American workforce, however, that's a member of, the, of a public employees union is now about a third of the American workforce. So it's uh, quite a striking difference. And it's interesting to, or it's important to point out how that former uh, standing of uh, union and union households uh, impacted American politics because all of these folks were Democrats. Well, in the American economy, Right. I mean, because uh, it is hard to ignore the fact that the uh, decline in labor union, in private sector labor unions, uh, correlates very highly with the rise of inequality mm-hmm. in American oh, politics, uh-huh. uh, in American life. And, uh, you know, it's not the only cause for the rise of inequality, but it's a factor. Right. And it's a factor because uh, private sector unions uh, fought for workplace rules. They worked for better, they fought for better working conditions, but they also fought for higher wages. Wages. Well, and, and it's, that's certainly true in public sector unions as well, right? I mean, especially... But less so. But less so. As uh, I, I, you know, I'm sure Paul will talk a little bit about this. Uh, you know, public sector unions do not necessarily have the bargaining power over wages that private sector unions uh-huh, did. Uh-huh. Uh, still, it was, it was for many, especially uh, folks in the inner city, it was an entree into the middle class and into a steady uh, paycheck for, for many, uh, m- many folks. Yeah, you're talking about unions in yeah, general. Public sector unions. Public sector unions. Yeah. Yes, but I mean, it's one, one is not the same as the other to my understanding. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, Paul will talk about mm-hmm. this, but I mean, private sector unions fought for higher wages. Public sector unions can't necessarily, well, so, yeah, can't necessarily do that. Right, because they don't have necessarily the, uh, the opportunity to strike. 
you know, the decline of, you know, I see the decline of public sector unions is intricately related to the increase in inequality. We never talk about it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't really talk in our politics about what's been lost by the decline of private sector unions. Uh, but to, uh, I think it's quite significant. It's not only that there's, there are fewer of these manufacturing jobs, jobs that were paid well, that had a certain kind of job security to them. Uh, those that do exist are less protected by unions and you're less likely to have the collective bargaining over wages. Uh, yet we don't really talk about that. I mean, I often think about these discussions we've had especially since uh, the, the Trump campaign about these coal miners and, uh, you know, how much has been lost by the uh, decline of uh, coal mining jobs and uh, Donald Trump's uh, arguments that he's going to get these people back into the coal mines. It wasn't the coal mining jobs that were good. It was the fact that unions were behind those jobs. And mm -hmm. so they mm -hmm. did pay well. So working conditions, while still you know, awful yeah. at times and dangerous, yeah. a very dangerous line of work. Uh, they had protections and those are gone. Right. Well, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good idea for us to be, you know, focusing uh, on the, the role or the, or the question around unions with respect to kind of, uh, you know, politics and, 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 and the role in democracy generally. And, and I'm uh, hoping that uh, Jenna and Paul will, will take that up. Okay, well, lots to talk about here. Why don't we bring in uh, Paul Clark and uh, Jenna? Sounds good. Okay. All right. Well, I'm Paul Clark, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. My pleasure. We are talking about uh, public sector unions today, and I think that teachers um, are certainly the most visible uh, public employee union. They've been in the news a lot lately, and I think you know most people can can think of a time in their lives when they either saw firsthand or saw in the news teachers walking the picket line, you know that type of thing. But um, I'm curious what other types of public employees are unionized that maybe are not, don't get as much attention, folks might not be as familiar with? Well, public sector unions represent employees at all levels of government. So there are public sector unions that represent federal workers, uh, state workers, um, county, city, municipality workers, and all the different kinds of employees that provide services there. Uh, teachers are sort of a high profile group. Uh, but municipal workers, people who work on the roads, PennDOT here in Pennsylvania, um, people who provide social services, um, uh, healthcare workers that provide public health care in, in state or, or city hospitals. Uh, so it's really every kind of worker whose employer is technically uh, a government of some kind. Um, and, and how did, did those groups uh, come to be unionized? Well, private sector employees, people who don't work for the government, work for companies and other employers, got the rights to organize, bargain, and engage in collective activity, that is usually to strike, uh, in 1935. Public sector workers were specifically excluded from the law that gave those the rights, uh, those employees their rights. And so over the next 20, 30, 40 years, uh, public sector workers fell significantly behind their counterparts in the private sector because private sector wages were going up as a result of unionization. So beginning in about the 1960s, um, in conjunction with other activism in the 60s, the civil rights movement, uh, women's rights movement, there was a movement by public sector employees to gain the right to bargain collectively. Uh, and uh, throughout the 60s and the 70s, uh, a number of states, the federal government and cities and municipalities passed laws giving 
um, some of their workers these rights to bargain and, and to engage in collective activity. Now, just to be clear, even to this point today, there are probably only about half of the states that give these rights to their public employees. Now, the federal government does, but they're very, very limited rights. Federal government employees cannot bargain over pay and benefits. So that doesn't leave a whole lot uh, left to, to bargain about. Um, I didn't realize it was a fairly you know, recent, the past 40, 50 years that these unions have kind of come online. And you mentioned that um, you know, uh, wage growth was one, one reason for their kind of forming in the first place. Have, so in, in the, the time since some of these unions have formed, have the, the wages caught up to, you know, or I guess maybe, maybe the fair question is how have the, the wages changed since the, the unions were, were established? Yeah, unions have been successful at uh, raising the wages, benefits, and improving the working conditions of workers in those states that give them the rights to collective bargaining. Pennsylvania is a very good example because Pennsylvania was the first state to give any public employees the right to strike. Uh, that was in 1970. And they were also the first state to give police and firefighters the rights to collective bargaining, although they don't have the right to strike. And so in Pennsylvania, you can track over the years the significant increase in the salaries of public employees. And you can compare it to states where uh, similar employees have not had those rights, and you can see the big difference that unions make. And so there's there's kind of an old trope out there, if you will, that you know people don't get into public sector work for the money, right? They can make more money conceivably in the in the, the private sector, and there's maybe a sense of, of altruism that that comes with working in in the public sector as opposed to to the private sector. Um, does that play play into the the union activity at all in terms of you know collective bargaining or deciding whether to strike or you know things like that? Well, sure it does. I mean, first of all, any worker is is very, very reluctant to strike. A strike is a, is a last resort. However, if you don't have the possibility of striking, then collective bargaining really doesn't work very well. Uh, there's a sort of a joke in... Uh, in our field about public sector bargaining, um, like the federal workers who cannot strike, they call that collective begging. Uh, because sure, you get to sit down and meet with the employer, but you have no leverage uh, if there isn't at least a possibility of striking. Um, but in terms of the public service aspect uh, in unions, just because public sector employees uh, feel a need to bargain better wages and salaries so they can better support their families, that doesn't in any way negate uh, the service aspect. A really good example is a group that uh, I just met with last week, the air traffic controllers. Uh, I mean, you cannot find a group of public employees that are more dedicated to the service they provide to the public, yet they have a very strong union. And interestingly, they can't bargain over wages and benefits. But one of the things they do use their uh, union to do is to get a greater voice in decisions about how the air traffic control system is run, because they're the people with their hands on the switches every day uh, uh, talking to the pilots. And they have great insight as well as great dedication to the service they provide. And they want to have a voice at the table. Without a union, uh, they probably wouldn't have that voice. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's that's interesting. You think about these jobs that really they are critical to have, to very fundamental aspects of our everyday lives. Um, so in in the way that I think unions are are often framed, um, it's kind of this you know the the people against the man or this kind of large corporate entity. Um, I'm I'm curious what that looks like in in the public sector. You know who plays the role that the the corporations play in in the the private sector. Is it 
taxpayers? Is it the government? And who fills those shoes? Well, for the most part, just like the private sector, in the public sector, if you're a public employee in a non-union situation, the management of that agency makes all the decisions. One of the key things that unions do is balance the power um, in a workplace. Um, Generally, in democratic societies, we don't think that unilateral power is a healthy thing. That's what a democracy does. It it makes sure that a tyrant or or a dictator uh, doesn't have all the power, and the power is distributed between the citizens and the leaders. Um, It's the same thing in a workplace. Um, Unions bring democracy to the workplace in the sense that they provide a countervailing force to the unilateral power of the employer. And that plays out in a lot of ways. Um, it, it introduces fairness into the workplace. One of the key things that unions do is provide something called just cause. Uh, now, if you have civil service um, regulations, then employees are protected in some ways from being dismissed uh, without cause. But most Um, School districts, for instance, don't have those. So if you're a teacher in a school district and you don't have a union, the superintendent can fire you for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. The only thing they can't fire you for are reasons that would uh, violate federal discrimination law, race, sex, color, religion. But what unions do is they come in and one of the first things they do is negotiate a just cause clause into the contract. And the way just cause is enforced is that ultimately uh, an employee can file a grievance. It will eventually go to a neutral third party, an arbitrator who's like a judge, and the judge will decide whether the school district has just cause. Unions sometimes are accused of protecting weak employees. Uh, people will say, oh, you can't fire a union employee. That's not true at all. The truth is that if you do fire or discipline an employee, you have to have a good reason. And you have to be able to prove that reason. So um, unions bring just cause and due process to the workplace, which is another element of democracy that's absent where unions don't exist. Yeah, sure. It's kind of that, that, that check on the power, right? We've talked on the show about congressional investigations and ways that different branches of government hold each other accountable. This, this strikes me as something similar in that, that kind of workplace setting. Um, so we've we've also um, you know heard a, heard a lot over over the years about the decline of private sector unions. Um, what do those trend lines look like in in the, the public sector? One of the reasons for the decline of unions, and this is the, something that scholars in my field study very closely, is that there's really been a concerted effort on the part of private sector employers to take on unions to reduce their influence, to fight them when they try to come into the workplace, to mobilize politically to weaken the laws that protect unions. And that's been a very effective campaign over the last 40 years. Interestingly, once that effort to weaken unions, both in the workplace, but also politically, because unions are a sort of the backbone or a backbone of the Democratic Party, Uh, It appears that around 1910, those forces having succeeded in in weakening the private sector union to a a, a really extreme degree, turned their attention to the public sector unions because public sector unions were thriving. And in 2011, we saw the beginning of of an ongoing campaign um, to attack public sector unions to revoke their rights to uh, even exist, to bargain collectively, and uh, uh, and to weaken their influence where they did exist. Wisconsin was really the big battleground in 2011. Interestingly, Wisconsin was the first state to give 
any public employees any rights to collective bargaining. That was in about 1960. Uh, so it's ironic that Wisconsin became sort of the first state to try to roll back those rights. And under a conservative Republican administration, with the support of a conservative Republican um, legislature, um, laws were passed that basically decimated unions uh, in the state of Wisconsin. It worked pretty well. Politically, it took out of play one of the bigger uh, uh, supporters of the Democratic Party in, Wis in Wisconsin, and, and Republicans have had much more success since. This didn't go unnoticed by other states that had strong public sector unions. Uh, so you saw a wave of uh, legislation to weaken or, or eliminate public sector unions. But the end result was that the public sector labor movement in the United States over the last uh, eight or nine years has also seen a significant decline in membership. Sort of the uh, coup de grace in this movement is a Supreme Court case that uh, was just heard recently, and we'll probably have the decision this summer, which would, um, in one fell swoop, really weaken public sector unions across the country. And without getting into all the details, basically the case involves the ability of unions to uh, make public employees that they represent pay for those services. Um, it would take away their ability to do that. Labor law, when it gives the union a right to bargain, um, gives it the obligation to represent all 100% of employees in a unit, let's say in a school district. Um, the union has to support all of those people, bargain for all of those people, provide representation to all of those people. Unions believe that everyone who's getting the representation should pay something for those services. And so they negotiate clauses where employees in that school district would have to pay something to the union for that representation. Uh, the Supreme Court is hearing a case that would make that illegal. Therefore, uh, many, many union mem uh, people who are represented by unions could now stop paying any fees or dues and get the services for free. That's going to take um, uh, big chunks of, of resources away from unions. And again, um, you know, I don't think this is an accident. This has been a concerted political uh, strategy and campaign to weaken and decimate union uh, public sector unions, and um, you know it could reach its uh, its uh, peak here in uh, in the summer if the Supreme Court rules in favor uh, or rather rules against unions, which they're expected to do. That's so interesting. I think on the one hand, you might be able to spin that as something that might be on its face more democratic, right? So we want to give access to everyone so they don't have to pay and you can it's kind of an easy message to get behind when the opposite might actually be the case if it takes away the you know budgetary power that these unions have. Um, so speaking of, of unions and, and politics, I know that um, the teachers in Arizona um, kind of made headlines uh, earlier this year when they endorsed a gubernatorial candidate there. Can you talk about the the precedent for unions kind of getting directly involved in politics, making endorsements and things like that? Unions also operate in the political arena because the legislation um, that gives them the right to exist um, can be easily changed. Um, there's lots of other legislation that benefits employees, workers' compensation, unemployment compensation, safety and health, that unions um, need to be vigilant about, that they need to advocate for, or they need to try to protect through lobbying efforts. Um, 
It's one of the reasons that um, they're under the gun politically, because um, very often that flies in the face of the uh, agenda of the business community. So by weakening and, in fact, virtually wiping out unions in many of these states, um, not only are unions not able to lobby um, for uh, legislation that protects their members, they also can't be active in the political process. They, they just don't have members. They don't have resources. Now, you mentioned the teachers in Arizona um, who have gone out on strike. Uh, that's also happened uh, in a number of other states, uh, Oklahoma, West Virginia. The interesting thing is those are all states where workers do not have the rights to collective bargaining. They do have unions or associations, but they're more professional organizations. They cannot in any way, shape, or form participate in decisions about what they'll be paid. Subsequently, they're paid very little. And what's happened in those states over the years is that the forces that advocate for lower taxes have gone unchallenged. Taxes have been cut and cut and cut. And the share of whatever tax money comes in that goes to education has fallen farther and farther. So these teachers are very poorly paid. They're working in schools that are, in many cases, just in decrepit condition. Um, and these teachers, even though they don't have the right to collective bargaining, finally have said enough. And they're using their collective power um, outside of, really outside of the union, outside of any law, to say enough is enough. And um, those states have paid the price for, in the past, not giving a voice to their teachers. So that if, if unions had existed there, um, they probably wouldn't be in the position they're in now in terms of the state of their, their schools. So do you think it's possible in 2018 for a new public sector union to form? Do you think that can happen in our current climate? In the states where you're seeing this, the, the politics are such that that would be a really, really um, um, ambitious goal. Um, but you still have workers there, teachers and other public employees, who can use their voice uh, collectively um, uh, to advocate for these kind of things. Now, if they become effective enough and powerful enough, one of the things they can advocate for is the rights. Uh, to engage in collective bargaining like uh, many other states have. Um, but I, I, it's too early to see whether they'll make that kind of progress. But again, I think these cases are instructive um, in terms of the positive role that public employee unions play in society. Um, but um, you know, there clearly is a correlation. The states that have the best education systems uh, most uh, often have strong unions advocating uh, for their education systems and for their teachers. I think we're going to close, uh, as we always do on our podcast, with our Mood of the Nation poll question. So um, this will be kind of a, a lightning round. So I have four questions for you, all related to the subject of American politics. So looking for um, short, your best Twitter-worthy uh, answers to these questions. So four questions. Here we go. Um, thinking specifically about American politics, um, what makes you angry? Uh, the ability or lack of ability of people to really see um, what the best interests of the country are. And what makes you proud? 
the fact that more and more people are getting engaged to uh, 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 create a, a more positive society. For sure. And then uh, what makes you worry? I, I worry uh, that um, the younger generation in our world will become cynical because of uh, many of the failures of the older generations. And then finally, what gives you hope? Well, again, I think it's it's the younger generations that we're um, seeing starting to get more active um, and who who seem bound to determine not to make the same mistakes that their parents have made. Paul, thank you again so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna. And Paul, that was, yeah, thank you, Jenna. That was, that was terrifically interesting. I really learned a lot. Yeah, I really did too. uh, One thing I want to pick up on there is uh, Paul's notion that, uh, you know, within a democracy, you are uh, dispersing power and that unions are a sort of countervailing uh, power. A check, as it were. Yeah, a check on power. And so the weakening of public employees' unions is a weakening of this countervailing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. power center. Mm -hmm. And as a result... His argument is you uh, you see um, the decline of not just you know their salary and their benefits, but also a decline in the services that they provide. Right, and and you know it's hard to separate out public employees unions from the party system, and so there is a sense in American politics, and I think it's it's legitimate that uh, Democrats are much more the party of public employees unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it used to be unions in general, maybe a little less so, but certainly of public employees unions, certainly the teachers unions, right. who are the largest of the public employees unions. Uh, you know, this is true, but in some ways it's also, you know, overstated. But the Democratic Party was always the, the party associated with the, uh, the worker, right? Always associated with the worker, but in a very different kind of way. But it's also true that teachers provide a lot of the labor for the Democratic Party. There are a lot of the people that are out there knocking on doors for the Democratic Party. The teachers, political action committees, and other public employees unions make contributions to the Democratic Party. So attacks on these public employees unions are also partisan. They help to weaken the Democratic Party to a certain extent. I think that's true. But I I mean, listening to Paul, I also got the sense like what we are in now is the is the natural ending of this uh, world in which America and American manufacturing was um, was the top, and we could afford to um, you know inc- bring union members into the middle class because we were the only game in town. And with the decline in manufacturing, we're now competing with you know, China and Vietnam and other places that are perfectly willing to pay their, you know, their workers $10 a day and we can't do it. And so, sorry, guys, game's over. Yes, but but that started long before globalization. I mean, the the, the textile industry in New England moved to the the south where Mm -hmm. there are no labor unions. Mm -hmm. The automobile industry in many ways, moved down south. Right. Other manufacturing moved down south. So before you had the before you had the threat 
of low-cost labor, non-unionized labor around the world, you had this kind of mobility of capital in the United States. Now, but, but one thing that Paul was talking about that was really quite interesting is that it's different in the public sector, and that here, the public sector unions may have a certain kind of power that private sector unions did not. And that is, if you're building an auto plant, you can pick it up and move it to Tennessee, where there aren't unions. But if you're running a school system in Wisconsin, you can't move it right. down south. Right. And so this gives, this gives them a certain kind of leverage that, uh, you know, to the extent that they can move uh, to, say, to school districts and to city governments, you need to pay us more or we're going to go somewhere else. So this is, this is interesting in terms of what we're seeing in, in Oklahoma and Arizona. These, and, and, and Jenna actually asked about this, this question of, you know, that a public sector union employee also feels some kind of commitment to, you know, their their role their their profession and to the public good and so i think a lot of people in oklahoma don't want to leave but they feel like um they can't stay right they want to fight for better schools in oklahoma Mm -hmm. and they want to fight for better schools in arizona and in fact they have relatively weak bargaining power in these states because as i believe paul mentioned they can't they can't collectively bargain over wages uh, I, I think their strategy in these protests, marches, strikes is actually a little bit different. I think they're trying to influence the political process right. uh, by influencing right. public opinion. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately they recognize that they're better off if they elect a party that is more sympathetic to public spending than a party that is less sympathetic well, to public and, spending. And you do see, you know, you, you do get this argument that, you know, you just can't keep cutting and not exp- and and think that it's going to everything's going to be okay. And how you can be an Oklahoman and not care about the quality of education and quality of public education just I don't understand that. And the argument that you know you have these books that are 30 years old, how you can claim to have an adequate education if that's the case. So right, you're accepting the idea uh, and I'm sympathetic to this as well and Paul was talking about this also that teachers unions for example are advocating for better schools. So teachers, right, they play an important part in the democratic process, not only not only advocating for themselves, which they are doing, but advocating for their conception of what the public good is, which is to be spending more on public services. Right. Of course, if you're spending more on public services, you're spending more on them. Right. I, I, you know, clearly. And, you know, and so you can make the argument that this is a, you know, oh, it's just people, you know, look, they get three months off a year anyway. They got great health care. You know, they don't need any more money. But the way they're playing this now is to say, look, we represent we understand that this this tax cutting has has gone so far as to undermine one of the most fundamental uh, um, tasks of the state, which is to educate young people. And so, I mean, you do see, I think, at least um, a, a push back against this, um, uh, you know, tax cutting agenda. And it'll be interesting to see. I think this may just be a bigger story than we, we, we think it is right now. Well, because it has the feel of being wrapped up in all this other right. energy and activity right. Right. that we perceive on the left. There's been some evidence of this in the, uh, in the special elections. Yeah. What, what kind of country we, do we want? Right. right? And, mm-hmm. and is, it, is it enough to say, 
We want to pay less taxes. And what role do these labor unions play in it now that labor unions are more likely to be representatives of public employee workers than of private sector workers? Yeah. It, anyway, fascinating conversation. And uh, once again, Jenna uh, is is the reason we uh, people listen to us because she does a great interview. Yeah. Chris, before we leave, we should mention that today for the first time, we're recording from the studios of the Rock Ethics Institute. Yeah. So our thanks today to The Rock yep. and uh, a shout out to listen to uh, their podcast as well. Rock the News. Rock the News. Yep. And this has been Democracy Works. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.